Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Paul Johnson. We're at the Linfield Library, Nicholson Library at Linfield University. February 16th, 2023. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? That's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of really good answers to that question, and none of them would be necessarily wrong. I think it's just wine is the kind of perfect thing for me, specifically. I think that... Um, yeah, in the world, there's just like we're you know living in this age of information and in the in a realm of just like you know scientific realities where it feels like there's almost no great mysteries left in the world. And wine, I think, is one uh, one source of that. You know, a place in in life, uh, a place in the in industry where we can like still seek out these mysteries and something. It's always going to be experimentation based on uh, curiosity about um, it's transcended culture. It's been around longer than recorded history. <laughs> um, just, uh, yeah, the fact that we still have access to this great mystery is really, really great. Um, I think uh, for me individually, it, it um, ends up being this thing that we can dive into because, I don't know, in life, I've always like felt like that's just like as my human experience as like just being uh, a creature in the earth. That one of my great duties is to find a way to be that that druid, that uh, dryad kind of a figure. Um, how do I connect to nature properly, right? Um, how do I, you know, build that bond between uh, myself and living energy in the world? And I think that wine, it's you know, here we get to work with wine. It's a single ingredient. It's you know, in some ways, I feel like we get to like put a spigot directly into the ground and, and tap into the soil and like the blood of the earth comes directly out into our glass and we have you know that kind of just natural experience. Um, in life I've always been um, an artist. That's like I think my foundation of my my character. I mean that's I've always I've always been a painter, I've always been a storyteller. My I don't have a background, I don't I don't I don't have a degree in enology or in uh, viticulture or anything like that. I didn't I didn't know at an early age that I wanted to do wine. I was uh, I've always uh, dabbled in fine arts. Um, my degree is in literature and creative writing. I have a minor in fine arts and I've just always had this desire, you know, throughout life to be a director of films, to be a, a, an author of novels, to be a successful painter, right? And then I think that um, having found in my early 20s found this world of wine and just more I, the more I realized about it the more I realized that it was this creative force that you could like infuse so much creativity and artwork into it and at the same time draw directly on the earth and become a steward of nature in that way um, I think it just yeah and for wine just the more I learned about it the more I realized it was the perfect thing for me to be able to like spill myself into um, yeah and it's just it's an enchanting process. Just you know, it's one of those things that the more you learn about, the more you realize that you you need, there's more to learn. The more you realize you want to learn more. I had a friend I know that was like a very talented guitarist. You know, I remember thinking about this when I was younger, and like you know, where when you're young, you're always like trying to figure out what is that right thing for your character, for your soul. You don't have like direction, and you're trying to like always figure out like what is it that makes me genuinely happy. And I had this friend that was just like at an early age, talented, talented musician. And I remember. I don't remember if I was, if me that asked him or someone else, 
this anecdote was uh, uh, someone was like, "How do you like? How do you force yourself to play? Like, how do you force yourself always to come back and practice?" And he was just like, he, like looked at you like you're an idiot, and it's just like, "This is what I do when I have other responsibilities. This is how I shirk them, right? Like the guitar is like how I come back to that, and uh, uh, and it's it's like it's just natural, and I think that." Once you find that thing in life that just feels natural, like you just want to continue exploring it, continue doing it, um, you kind of know that you're on that path. And I think that I spent a good part of my teenage years and early 20s like seeking that out and definitely just stumbled into it. Um, Fantastic answer. I like that. I want to come back and pick it up there, but let's back up a little bit and talk about upbringing and life before wine. So tell us yeah. about born and raised and uh, life before wine. Yeah, I'm from New England. I was born and raised in Connecticut. Um, not really a wine region by any means, but I did grow up a little bit around wine. Um, my mom worked in the restaurant industry my entire life and was what I think a lot of people would refer to as a sommelier in her position, just um, writing the writing the list of wine for a restaurant, you know, for multiple different restaurants as I was growing up. And I never had an interest, you know, you never like, you know, my dad was an op was a optician, you know, my mom was, uh, you know, worked in wine and food. And, and, you know, I didn't like think at an early age, like this is, I'm going to like, you know, do one of these things. But it was those moments I think that I witnessed, uh, you know, just holidays, my mom, my uncle, my grandma, like, uh, around the kitchen counter as we're all like snacking on cheese, just like having these nerdy quiet moments around wine, seeing it as being this like, this catalyst for fun and revelry that was around that I kind of had a respect for it in the back of my head, but didn't really, you know, no one ever said like, you should you know, think about pursuing wine or you should like, or here's like some examples about how wine fits into culture. It was just kind of like there and I saw it um, and had a respect for it. And it was after, as I mentioned, I went to, uh, Went to, studied, uh, went to college at Southern Connecticut State University um, in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, and just, you know, as the friends of mine were all like getting into, you know, before pre-21 or whenever you start, you know, drinking alcohol, you know, people like start experimenting with different things and people were getting into like, these cheap beers and stuff. And I remember like early age, like being really curious about the beverage industry. Um, I think focused on beers. Everyone else was like drinking like these 30 packs of like uh, Bud Light. I was like curious about craft IPA and things. I wanted, you know, I started like learning about brewing and getting into uh, going to breweries and just I've always been a collector of things. And so I loved these niche brands that had really rare beers. I remember like like standing in line at like 6 a.m. before the before the daybreak at like breweries in like Vermont like like waiting to like get in just because they had like these rare cannings that you could only get if you were like on the site like after like the day after the release and just like I always had this like this drive like get that rare thing that uh, you know only I could get and just like in like joining these like online forums and chatting about these things and the more I learned about I think brewing and fermentation science the more it enchanted me this like kind of idea of alchemy in these days now that I'm like year, years later like making wine I still feel like this I still feel that magic you know that alchemy you know you're doing something you're just like you know participating in this like amazing natural process of fermentation and just getting a chance to observe um, but it was uh, yeah my mom got me into uh, a job in the wine industry and it was uh, wine retail um, but I kind of started as this you know with this passion for beer and like, you know started as like this uh, beer manager buying beer going up all down the east coast finding these rare IPAs that I could like you know get allocations of bring back and dole out to customers who were like were like you know these big beer nerds that I was exposed to wine you know working in um, uh, 
in this retail setting in Connecticut, in a kind of Western Connecticut, this uh, rural, kind of you know, relatively affluent area. Like a lot of just like you know, this this part of Connecticut was um, very woodsy. A lot of like you know, I grew up hiking, kayaking. Um, always had dogs. I was always just like spending all the time out in nature. Um, but this place was just like where a lot of like New Yorkers, Manhattan folks had their like their weekend houses and their summer houses. And so working in a wine shop, you had a chance to like you know get your hands on some pretty serious bottles. And I think it was, uh, yeah, working there and like seeing the wine buyer do his thing. And he had this passion for it long before I, he introduced me to it. This guy, I'll give him a shout out, Bill Bloor, was uh, um, a guy just my age who like, you know, had, a, had this real interest in something. And I think that seeing his attention to it really sparked an interest in me until I had a chance to like take the reins on that myself and, and, uh, and um, begin doing the same thing. Um, but it was just this, uh, this opportunity to uh, you know have these like in, a, in this re you know in this like we're in a library here I, I can this these cool uh, New England wine shops are like this like the, almost like a library for these like bottles there's like there's dust hanging there's motes of dust like hanging in the air on the lights and like these you know the the wine shop is kept chilly to make sure that the like you know the temperature of the bottles is not compromised and you wander through and like there's these like bins filled with hay or these bottles are resting and you just like it's you just like get, you know just going in and inspecting things and just like having a chance to like be there have this conversation with customers who wander in just like you help you start this conversation with them talk about wine and then guide them there but it was there that I like uh, had a chance to like develop my palate as you may know in, in the retail side of things there's you know for those uh, for really good wine shops that have a great following um, th those bins that I'm talking about are like prime real estate for the the reps of the wine distributors who come in so it's just you know at any given any given week you have these you have the opportunity to taste hundreds of wines you know these uh, you have like nine or ten different distributors all trying to like come in and peddle their wares and and like showcase things and so like you know we you know if a, one of these wines finally sells out it, it took a year to sell out and um, you, it's it uh, didn't do very well or it's like you know that producer is no longer available or something and like this this hole opens up and it's you know that everyone's like fighting for that and so we got into this rhythm of um, when it came time to uh, bring in a new wine we would tell like all the distributors hey we need like a bottle of Chablis, for example, in like the price point of somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five dollars, just like bring me your best thing, and they would drop off this bottle, complimentary sample. We'd brown bag them, and we would just, you know, uh, like do a deep blind tasting. This is like back in like you know I was like twenty-one, twenty-two years old. I was just like, this is you know free booze, <laughs> uh, you know free wine and good stuff, and just like getting to explore that. And but like force, forcing myself to learn, and then also forcing my palate to taste small nuances in the wines. Um, uh, learn these small details, but without any formal training at that point. Um, and the idea was just like we pick our favorite thing, and it's going to be the easiest thing to talk to people about because we chose it. Nine things blind, and this is the one. You know, um, doing that every week with several different wines, whether you're doing you know uh, Menthea from Spain, or you're choosing a new uh, you know Chianti or a Brunello or something, or just or back to California, and even we did it for Oregon. That's what like led us here, eventually. Um, but you do, you, you find something that is delicious and then it makes you curious and you do a little research and you learn more about it and before you know it you're just like obsessed and you're like spending half your day just like googling producers and regions and learning about the geology of northern New Zealand or <laughs> something random like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that kind of like, and I, I think it was those days when I realized, that, you know, I'm writing stories, I'm like 
publishing short fiction. I'm doing oil paintings and selling them in galleries and things like that. And it's just like this, but there, here's this like business, this whole industry based on something that I had that same kind of, uh, that, that had that same allure to me. That's like that, just like this whimsical thing that was so attached to nature, and I just, you know, gravitated towards it. Started um, looking into things like the Court of Masters and WSET programs, and I'm um, thinking more about this. Uh, both of which I've, you know, now I'm, these days I'm now like um, ventured into winemaking. Um, I consider myself a winemaker primarily, although I still am director of sales for a wine, uh, a, a large winery. Um, I'm, you know, I've at my background my, now, my um, resume probably lends itself more to becoming eventually like the general manager of a winery. But for me, it's just all you know. My heart knows that it's you know focused on being a craftsman, being a producer, and so um, I think that uh, those those early days in the wine shop were like allowed me to like uh, figure out where we wanted to be. My wife and I are both from Connecticut. She, we moved out here together uh, almost nine years ago. But um, she went to college in San Francisco on the West Coast, and I had just been working in wine for like six years at that point, and it was like new enough that I was like, okay, I've like reached my limit of how deeply embedded in this industry I can become, like on the East Coast, uh, and so I had this dream of like you know moving to a wine country. Um, I had been uh, selling wines there from producers. Uh, that I still love and respect. I was selling like Anticatera wines there, Domain Serene, I had Erath, I had Adelsheim. You know, these were all just like names and things that I was like, you know, gesturing at with with customers and like learning more about. But I had fallen in love with Oregon wines there. Um, some of my earlier now now I'm a producer of specifically white wines. I'm very passionate about like promoting you know white wines in the Willamette Valley. Um, the first wines that like really. Uh, Shine to me were these high acid white wines, whether they're just like you know New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or or Chablis or like you know Greek Assyrtiko and things that were just like and then like so, I think it was loving these wines. I think maybe that was a background of like like being a beer drinker and loving like these like double IPAs that were just like astringent and, and like bitter and hoppy and acidic. Uh, that led me to like it was these high acid white wines were like the first things that got me into wine. And then I realized if I'm going to be a serious wine drinker, I better get into Cabernet and Nebbiolo. <laughs> and so I like really kind of like forced myself in this path of exploring Bordeaux and uh, Syrah. I mean, I love any, I love wine really from any region that is a good expression of what it should be and is creative and uh, and inspired. But um, it was kind of like this bringing things back around to I think my palate does prefer lighter body high acid wines and that brought me back to like the Beaujolais and the, the red burgundy and that's what brought me back to Oregon I was like I was like I found wines in the United States that were agreeable to my palate and so I was like as, as much as I love and respect California and I love Napa Cab Napa Merlot um, I love uh, Syrah from Walla Walla. These are just like what I'm drinking on a rare occasion, whereas Pinot Noir was something that I was just like, I wanted to every day. And every wine I trade tasted was different. Um, and as I had studied Burgundy and learned about all like these Premier Cru, Grand Cru deviations and um, the geology of Burgundy and like the and the what set these like you know these micro parcels and monopoles apart from each other. Um, I started to realize that was the case for Oregon too. I started like tasting you know, in my little nook over in Connecticut. Started tasting wines from basalt and wines from marine sediment and realizing oh wow there's 
terroir differences over here. But my wife and I um, ventured out to the West Coast. We took a trip from, uh, we spent three weeks traveling from Seattle down to Santa Barbara and um, tasting wine all throughout. And so I'd never been to Oregon. And so we were like, okay, let's like, think about moving to the West Coast, go to a wine region. I didn't, I've never been to, I've been to California touring Napa and stuff, but I'd never seen the rest of the West Coast. So I was like, let's go see where we want to live. But it was like, just like two days into, we had like, you know, Portland was awesome. Spent like two days there hit the Oregon coast and then started hitting wine country and it was like, yeah, we can definitely live here. Love Oregon. It seemed like, you know, people who were just like actively outdoors people coming out with the dogs and the kayaks and stuff like that, we were like, okay, Oregon seems like it's, the, the community people seemed great, uh, the rural landscapes seemed great, um, the wines were amazing. And so we did, we finished our trip through California, but it was uh, after returning home six months later, like packing up the car and getting ready to drive across the country that um, it was Oregon was the destination. And so we were like, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to end up. We had like signed a lease with a uh, sight unseen with a place in Salem. Um, we had, when we knew Oregon was it, we were just like hunting everything, but nobody wanted to like rent to somebody who would like, you know, on a handshake, you know, uh, without, or sorry, I should say without a handshake, but like just like through a phone call. I managed to like find something on Zillow before they even uploaded pictures. And I'm calling these people, just like explaining my situation, just like this, you know, we're, we're serious, we're passionate. My wife and I, we got a dog. We're like, I can, I can like talk to my, my dad, would, would vouch for me. You know, I can put it, I'll pay for like the first six months, whatever you want. Like, we just had like, you know, our savings built up from just like being retail manager for years and, and uh, like a little bit of, uh, you know, inheritance from my grandmother who had passed away. And, and we were just like, let's make this happen. But yeah, Salem sight unseen in the Subaru, no job locked in. Neither of us had a, we didn't know a single soul on the West Coast, no family out here. Um, I was doing Zoom interviews as we drove across. We were like staying in a motel in a different city every night. And I was like, I, was, I had been applying for jobs. Like I was applying from everything from like, you know, I had a management background and, and um, you know, some wine certs under my belt and, and just, drive, you know, in a passion, but like I didn't really have any wine industry or like like to specific to working for a winery um, uh, experience whatsoever. So I was applying for like taste room manager, wine club manager, uh, assistant winemaker, like got getting no calls back, but it was like, yeah, it was uh, it was like a, like a hybrid kind of like sales and seller part-time position with Duck Pond Sellers. I remember like doing that Zoom interview from, you know, I was just like, I was wearing sweatpants and a button-down shirt with a tie, you know? And I'm in this like motel with uh, my, just my computer propped up doing a Zoom interview with my, my future hiring manager. And just like, yeah, yeah, okay, we like you, but, but we're still not gonna like offer you the job, come out and you know, you're on your way already, like meet us and we'll talk more about it. But I did, we made it out, made it to our place. Um, scary new world, but just like, it's so exciting, you know? Kind of like, what are we doing? Are we, are we serious? But, like, but just with that, you know, we're kind of like, Oh wait, well, we just did this. We put all of our savings into moving across the country and we're here and we better throw ourselves full force into this career and make this happen because we don't have another choice. Um, but that was my first um, opportunity in, in the world of Oregon wine was uh, this part-time position with Duck Pond Cellars that grew to full-time super quickly. I just kind of had this mentality, like I said, of just doing anything and just like being there 100% of the time, taking it, talking on any job, any responsibility. So I was like selling wines in the tasting room and like one day and the next day I would be like sorting invoices for the HR and accounting team. And then the next day I'd be, you know, just mopping the cellar or power washing the front. And then I, um, 
the uh, the seller master uh, seller master Oscar. A uh, Mexican-American guy who'd been working for, there for 18 years took me under his wing. I think he just realized, like, here's a kid with some hustle, you know? Like, like these, guys, these guys in the cellar were working long hours. They worked a lot. They loved their overtime. And I was just, like, a, another person that was just, like, I want to soak up everything and learn everything I possibly can. I had a little bit of Spanish, and um, they were, like, my first, yeah, I learned how to make wine in Spanish before I learned how to make wine in, in English, for sure. Um, but it was. I got to the point where I was just putting in like you know 60 hours a week on the bottling line and like helping them filter wines and you know it was like mid-year in a winery. Um, just fell in love. You know, I remember the first time I walked into this place. You know, I had toured wineries before. I'd visited wine regions and and uh, and um, watched videos, done a lot of reading. You know, read about chateaus and read about you know all these different places and like the history of wine monks making wine in the 1300s and planting vineyards up to like modern day you know elaborate winemaking facilities in Italy producing 10,000 or 10 million bottles a year and things and but i remember like just walking to this place that was a semi outdated winery not as state cutting state of the art as some of these places that are you know rising up out of the ground now um, but a working winery and just feeling absolutely mesmerized it was magic you know to me i was just i was like wait i get to work here and they're just like yeah go get to work you idiot you know <laughs> and nobody I, I don't know I, I don't know if it's because i didn't grow up in wine country everyone was desensitized to it but everyone had a reverence for their work and knew the importance of their work but i like was starry-eyed like just about the opportunity just like you want me to oh i get to go and uh restock inventory in a winery, you know, great, you know, you're gonna like let me get on that forklift? Uh, are you are you you trust me with that? Oscar's like, get, get out of here! You're driving slow. Like, pick up the pace, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, having that great experience and just loving it, loving the wines, and just and just it deeply embedded myself into the wine industry from the first moment. Any free minute I had. Outside of work, I was wine tasting and meeting people, attending every industry event that I could possibly go to, and just like learning more about these wines. Every day was just, um, what haven't I explored yet, and how do I get there? How can I go and explore this and try and learn about it? And just like different AVAs, different producers, trying to get to like, trying to get to like every one of the countless wineries out here as soon as I possibly could. And then um, at Duck Pond, uh, coming up on my what would be my first harvest. Um, I had spent a, you know, I'd been there for the full year. I had started like just after harvest. It was like, yeah, it was like just in that like chaotic moments post harvest. Is like the as like the, like primary fermentations are still finishing. That I like started the job and was like, you know, so we were bottling some of the over vintage wines when I first got started in like cellar work. But it was like the full annual cycle of the winery afterwards that I got involved, got my forklift skills going, got you know, learned how to like I said filter wine and, and uh, do racking and topping and all this stuff um, that uh, they had a new winemaker came on, come on. Um, guy, Trevor Schlanda was the winemaker. Um, a guy from uh, Sonoma, he had been working as the assistant winemaker in William Selium and they were bringing him up to like really revitalize the Pinot Noir program at, at Duck Pond, I think. And um, he didn't speak Spanish, and I had like this rapport with the seller team that had been there, you know, for 18 years. And because of that, like, you know, his first harvest in Oregon, my first harvest in Oregon. But you know, he had the wet skills and the lab skills necessary to do this, and like the and he had gone to school for winemaking, um, where I had never done, and and it offered me the opportunity to like be that point person. So I think I had like a first harvest that was pretty unheard of, where he would just like train me on lab work, and I like. You know, I got to inoculate like hundreds of fermentations. I got to learn how to do 
titrations. I was doing, you know, I was, I was doing bricks and temps every day, tasting these wines every single day. And so I just, you know, I had an opportunity there, just on a, on a large scale, from in a winery that was producing like 150,000 cases a year, to to learn the chemistry of winemaking firsthand and just kind of like witness that. You know what I refer to as alchemy, this magic. You know, I, I was like doing this on a large scale, but it was like amazing and magical and new to me with like every single thing. And I just realized more and more every day that went by. I was like, this is what I'm doing. Like, I had no question. Friends were calling from like East Coast, like saying, "Hey, you moving back? You guys staying out there?" I was like, "I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. So if you want to come visit, you know, <laughs> my parents who like probably like saw their adventurous son off, like he'll be back next year, kind of a thing. Where like I think starting to realize, ah, we, you know, we may have to start planning visits out to Oregon and stuff." As he and Barbara get settled. Um, but that was it. Absolutely became enchanted. And just, yeah, like I said, from an early point, knew that this was what I was going to be doing forever. And I still feel that way. Um, what year did you come out? Uh, that was uh, 2015. <clears throat> the important thing is that you had a Subaru already before you got here. So you were at least ahead of the game in that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, Subarus are essential on the East Coast, where we get a lot of snow uh, as well um, as just all those sorts of weather and all terrain stuff. But um, yeah, Subaru still serves me well. I actually got one of my first <laughs> the first year I was here. I got T-boned in an intersection out here in McMinnville, but I replaced it immediately with another Subaru, and luckily no one was hurt in the accident. But um, yeah, so my wife and I live now in, in Dayton. We did eventually. I still love Salem. I absolutely go down there all the time. And actually, now that we're, you know, my winery is based in Eola Amity Hills, and I really seek out fruit from Van Duzer Corridor, Eola Amity, as well as other AVAs. Uh, but I uh, absolutely love Salem. Wouldn't mind moving closer to that area eventually. But right now, living, breathing Dundee Hills AVA is, is where we are. I love being so centrally located. Um, but yeah, it was. Yeah, my wife, I should mention, does not work in wine. Although she, well, apart from like co-owning a wine company with me now, and you know, through all of my like you know advanced SOM certification, she's the one holding the the note cards and quizzing me on stuff. So like for somebody who works in, uh, she's the operations manager for a for a furniture design company, uh, Fernway Woodworking, and her background is like apprenticing in and uh, learning mid-century modern furniture and design in the world of art. She knows a lot more about wine than many people do. Um, because of the osmosis, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, in those early days, she was commuting to Portland uh, to work at the Good Mod up there in the Pearl District, and I was commuting to Dundee, and we both were, you know, just hustling, just really realizing like this is it, we got to make this work. Um, and but at the same time, absolutely loving every minute of it. Um, it was after uh, I was working for. Duck Pond for two years, um, learned a great deal, and at that time had a lot of people who were just that I'd met. The network had begun to build. I had just felt so lucky to like get to know people, and I think it was um, it's cement cemented in me. Like I, I think in those early days, we didn't know like we started in Oregon, and then we like go to other wine regions and 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 figure out where we are. But what really made me realize that no, we're staying in Oregon was just this community, and I think that my story is as as much as it is my own. It's it's it is the story of the Oregon wine industry and how giving and generous it is. Um, it, that, that, that's, it's kind of like it's talked about, um, like how collaborative and how purely and neighborly this wine industry is, but it's absolutely true. I mean, everyone here is just, you know, recognizes that we're on the cusp of greatness and is just sharing secrets in order to like get us there and, and, and views every novice as somebody who could potentially be somebody impactful. Um, and I, and I 
felt that among every, every winemaker or and that I've had a chance to meet with every winery owner who's spoken with me has just spoken to me like I am, you know, every bit as important as as somebody on their team or and it's just you know I remember just whether it's having the opportunity to hang out with a winemaker at an event where we end up just like tucked into like the kitchen in the back just like talking about like uh, pH levels or like when they sulfite wines and things like that or just like you know a, a meeting a meeting a, uh, a viticulturalist at a restaurant and they pass me their card and say like you know oh come in you know uh, come out and, and if you if you want some time to learn about the vineyard and I'd love to show you and like I'm in me being that person who was like <laughs> the, literally the next day like reaching out and saying hey can we, can we get on the, on the calendar right and just like taking it like just saying yes to every opportunity taking advantage of every opportunity um, it's just been this uh, been this roller coaster that's brought us here um, but I did end up leaving Duck Pond because uh, I needed to make a little money again I like depleted all of the savings and the yeah I think the just that the, sell, the seller worker uh, salary was a uh, not what I needed to do for my uh, for my family at that time, and so got back into with a more of a business management kind of resume and wine and like you know wine studies, and I got uh, the opportunity to start a brand. Um, so I for I went to work for um, Mark Tarlov, who has roots in the Oregon wine industry, of course. Uh, he was the, one of the founders of Evening Land, and then he had gone on to found Chapter 24 Vineyards, but I got to come and work for him um, just as we were starting the Alit Wines brand, and I got to stay with the company as we launched the Rosanero Estate brand. And so opening that taste room back in 2017, starting uh, kind, of a, kind of a company that was um, a new idea in DTC wine and founded in these principles of amazing farming and amazing winemaking was the heart of everything. Um, <clears throat> with the background of uh, Chapter 24 Vineyards, you know, Mark, Mark Tarlow founded that company with Louis-Michel Ligia Belair. You know, this person is an amazing icon in wine, you know, has to be in a conversation for one of the best producers of Pinot Noir in the entire world currently. And um, a descendant of Napoleon, you know, a count, eighth generation winemaker, he owns La Romanée in, in Burgundy. And like coming to work, you know, being out here for two years and then getting a chance to work for these guys. I'm like, what am I doing? You know, this is just amazing. Getting to work for the head winemaker, Felipe Ramirez, and getting a chance to work with, you know, some of the world's leading like geologists uh, in wine studies, Pedro Parra. Um, some of the best viticulturalists in the in the state. Um, Natanya Welsh is an, an incredible, incredible woman, and just so giving with her knowledge. But you know, working for a company that literally employs like between eight and eleven people on an annual cycle, uh, even th even though you are like the hospitality manager and eventually like director of sales for a company, you are working in every part of that. You know, so again, like looking back at like the duck pond is like you know, yeah, I learned as much in those days like sorting invoices, you know, about wine business as I did about like, getting to bottle or getting to learn about wine club and wine sales from those sides of the team. Um, now getting to work, you know, learn about winemaking and viticulture and the history of wine. As like the as the salesperson for a brand, and and of course, meanwhile, learning about brand concept and brand development, which now plays into everything I do. Um, but yeah, I uh, had the great opportunity to spend um, five years with those guys. The Rose Narrow wines, in my opinion, are still uh, some of the best Pinot Noirs in the Willamette Valley. Inspirational wines, um, and the whole project, you know. Uh, a lit in Rose Narrow is, is really cool. It's a new, kind of an, a different concept than a lot, and a different model than a lot of the wine, wineries take. But Mark, looking back at Mark Tarlov, who has since passed away, was he was just like uh, somebody with an extensive background um, 
as a lawyer and then a, a director of film in Hollywood and then his last chapter was being a vintner um, and uh, but he like for him like it was all about assembling this dream team so he like like bringing in Louis Michel consulting winemaker bringing in Felipe Ramirez an, as an amazing head winemaker you know uh, and then Pedro Parra as this uh, geological resource we, and it was just about like giving Oregon a voice and that was always the thing is like you, you still always get this conversation especially talking to people who are just discovering Oregon for the first time after loving Burgundy like there's this uh, I think a lot of people have this mentality of like Oregon is trying to um, recreate Burgundy or, or, or repeat what the, the success of Burgundy but that's truly not what we're doing here at all and I think I first learned that from Mark Tarlov uh, in, in truth we are giving Oregon a voice right the only thing we have in, in um, common with Burgundy is like being on the same temperature band as them you know and because of that we have the right number of growing days and the right temperature range for this grape but otherwise we have completely different geology uh, we have a completely different climate here than they do in Burgundy and so truly yeah this idea of giving Oregon a voice is I think super inspirational and these guys were out doing microconductivity testing in the vineyard and um, digging soil pits and doing cross sections and trying to f trying to pinpoint those Premier Cru and Grand Cru vineyards in Oregon you know the, the outlook being like you know, it's thousands of years that, that it's taken to find the perfect parcels for Pinot Noir in the world and Oregon, it, I think it, the greatness had been proven. There were like these examples of wine in Oregon where we knew, okay, excellence is possible here, but to think that we figure out everything in like five decades of farming was wild to these guys. And so it was all just an exploration. Farming company first, winemaking company, and, and wine business second is all about discovering more. And just being able to follow along with them, you know, even though I was uh, hospitality manager into DTC manager into director of sales over my five years with the company my most memorable moments were like you know being in the soil pits with Pedro um, being out in the vineyard with Natanya being in the winery with Felipe and being you know blend being able to like look back and say I've done a number of like blending sessions with Louis Michel Ligia Belair you know is just incredible and um, so impactful and I think that Coming from my first experience out here, being a slightly more large-scale, more commercial winery, you know, I wouldn't, you know, then going to one that is like super minimal intervention, a total respect for terroir, in fact, like hyper terroir obsession about terroir, um, was a big s switching point. So even though I like my early days were like understanding fermentation science through, you know, um, commercial yeast and um, large-scale winemaking, five thousand-gallon tanks, and you know months that stretch on just bottling and bottling and bottling <laughs> wines that go into wholesale distribution and then moving to a winery where we're making 4,000 cases of ultra premium wine um, and just like taking both of those things and like marrying them in the middle um, recognition for our place in the world of wine uh, understanding wine in the commercial market and what it means to people you know the fact that we're talking about you know I just recently got back from Italy uh, we were in Tuscany having uh, well, actually, this was we were having a pizza in Florence, and I was telling my server that we were from Oregon. They're like, "Oh my God, best Pinot Noir in the world!" I was like, "Wait, you got that Burgundy right over there." But to, to know that like other places in the world are experiencing these wines and, and we're cultivating that notoriety, is is so awesome. Um, and looking back again, I think that when we chose Oregon, we realized, okay, California, Washington, here's Oregon. 
it's a newer region. And we felt like there was more room for this experimentation and growth. There was more of an opportunity for us to like embed ourselves into it and just like forcefully become a part of it. And that proved to be true for sure. Um, but on my winemaking side, as soon as I left, you know, the cellar uh, at Duck Pond and started working for uh, Rosanero, um, I realized immediately first harvest rolls around the electricity is in the air around wine country and everyone is just like paying attention to the weather patterns and and getting ready for ripening and I'm just like I can't not like make wine and so like that first year I was like Rosanero was super supportive I was just like let me get some fruit you know can I can I get some barrels and I just uh, I just decided to make wine at home and made like wine in the garage I had two barrels and made it. Got, I got actually Pinot Noir from uh, one of, actually the first person that ever gave, got me fruit, sold me fruit was another, another person who ended up being super impactful in my Oregon wine career so far. Um, Alan Methven, another character who has sadly just passed away in the past year. Um, I had met him because I had been I, I started managing the, com the the tasting room right across the street from his Dundee tasting room, and we immediately just. An outgoing, vivacious character just came over, introduced himself, and we hit it off. And so I was just—I remember that first year. I was like, I want to like make some wine. Hey, Alan, you mind if I like just like come and? Is there wine for sale? I was like, oh well, yeah, we can do that. He's like, how much do you want? I was like, enough to fill a barrel. Uh, you know, uh, wh what do you think? Can I like, give you a thousand dollars? Like, oh, that's too much. You know, do I, just do five hundred. Actually, I, looking back, I don't even know if he ever cashed that check, so it might have just been free. But uh, he just said, like, I'll let you know. Uh, I'll tell Greg we're doing this. Greg was the winemaker for Methven, and and he'll tell you like a couple days before they're gonna pick the Pinot Noir, and you can just come out and just like pick it and load it in your car. I was like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And so like, I'm managing a team and starting a sales program you know, for like zero club members, zero sales in the books when we started that place. And the first year, you know, we had got on like 400 members for the Lit brand. But meanwhile, I'm like at home, like being this alchemist in my garage and just like doing it, but also like doing it well, you know, like not, you know, I think that now, um, you know, in my life, fantasy fiction and is, is such a big part of my life. I infuse it very much into my, my company now that I can, if I, I can talk about that in a little bit. But, um, I think one of the cool things when I start daydreaming about wine is thinking about how they made wine before we had, you know, access to great science and 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 uh, and, and a great amount of um, me mechanized winemaking tools and stuff. And so, yeah, we're just I'm out there just using cheesecloth to to filter the wines and you know pressing things with my bare hands and just you know using you know a, a small tank of argon gas just to keep keep the oxygen away. But yeah, making good wine at home. Of course, it wasn't bonded or anything. I couldn't sell that at that point. But I realized quickly, like, I loved doing it so much. And I started like, doing it at home. You know, like I said, I'm an artist. I was just like, sitting there like, in my free time, just like sketching out concepts of labels and, and, and brand designs and logos and realizing, oh, yeah, I'm going to. I realized about then that I was going to start my own company at some point. I didn't know if it was going to be like in the distant future, if it was in the near future. All I knew at that point was that I was never going to miss a harvest, that for the rest of my life I would be in Oregon um, and I would be here for every harvest making wine. Um, and so if that was going to be in my garage every year, so be it. But um, things escalated pretty quickly just because you get these opportunities. Like you, you, when you're focused on something, you're passionate about something in an industry like this that is so collaborative. Um, you uh, just opportunities just kind of land in your lap. I like to say, and it's, I think it's I think it's part about the it's par partially about my drive and the drive that someone may have in my situation, and it's partially about the opportunities that this industry in Oregon offer. But um, 
I had a friend that had a cider business, and that very next year, um, I was given the opportunity to make wine under bond in a professional facility with a forklift, with a press, you know? And I was like, oh, like, this is magic. And so, uh, yeah, I, that was the first year, the following year, that I made wine under a bond professionally, started the Seder Fire brand. Seder Fire is my company. So that was in 2018? Uh, 2018 was the first vintage where Seder Fire was on the books. Um, 2019 wines were the first ones that I ever had for sale. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I got to make, I got some Syrah from uh, uh, Horse Heaven Hills in Washington. I got some Pinot Noir uh, from Rosanero. I was just, I asked Felipe, the winemaker, I was just like, hey, uh, I'd love to. Get a, get a ton of Pinot. I was like, what does that look like? He's just like, I'll tell you when we're picking it. You show up with a bin. I got, I rented a U-Haul and just like, and I and I bought a picking bin secondhand and I just like went out there and I just like left it in the in the vine row and they picked Vadensville Pinot Noir into it and I just like they forklifted my U-Haul and then I just like brought that back to the winery, right? Um, and I got Riesling and that was I think the first time I made white wine and kind of discovered that passion. Um, but not that I made you know a lot of white wine, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, working at Duck Pond. But it was like that that barrel of Riesling was the first time I ever like made a made a white wine personally. Yeah, I'm Hill Valley Vineyards. And now I'm six years in a row. I've now made wine from that vineyard. That's my longest standing fruit relationship, and it's my it's my most prized source. I love it. Um, but uh, yeah, I got to make those wines there, and then now has been I'm like several transitions into my career, but like that was the first one. Jared Montanez, my friend who owned Xylem Cidery, uh, sold that business and they were going to stop production. And so I um, had to find a new home. My first call was to Alan Methben, uh, who had been just like the same person that provided me with fruit, had the same person who just like extended that neighborly hand to me early on. And I just called him like the same day that I realized that like I was a homeless winemaker. Like, hey, I know you offer custom crush at your winery. I was like, do you mind if I, I, I need to bring my barrels somewhere. Like, do you mind if I bring them over there? He's like, absolutely. $15 a month per barrel is like, <laughs> is the, is the rent. <laughs> and then we can talk about custom crush here in the future if you want to keep making wine. And so I did. And um, I moved my wines over to Meth Bend, and that became my home for the next four years. Uh, Greg, the head winemaker there, was uh, very accommodating, um, welcome me in, welcome me to that, that community. And that's the thing here. It's like this is, it's, it's a great time in wine history, I think, where for people like me with no funding, no background, just a, just a desire to do it can actually get involved, right? And I think that wine has been so exclusive for so long. I think that many, many generations of winemaking is like you've had to have been involved in this. You have to have a family history in this. You have to have a lineage. You have to have, you know, this. I think that's say, that saying where, you know, how do you, how do you make a million dollars in wine? You start with two million. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that we are in an age where we have a lot of access. Um, we have these custom crush facilities where you can come and make your wine. Um, you have. Um, fruit vendors, you have vineyards out here with pe growers who are so willing to work with you. And um, that's, that's just like been like maintaining and upholding those relationships has been like the core of being able to do what I'm doing now. Um, last year I worked with eight different farmers to buy fruit. And those relationships, like every single one of them is a different character in my story, right? But every one of them is allowing us to do this. Yeah, it comes at a cost, like the fruit's not cheap, nor is the custom crush, but it's all reasonable. You can, you can build a business on it, and you, can, and you can build a profitable business on it. It takes years, you know, from the, from the time that you get the grapes. It's like 18 months before you can make a dollar on that wine, early, earliest. Um, but 
uh, through through just hard work and putting things away and good ma business management, you can um, begin putting away inventory and start building towards a brand. And that's what we're working towards now. And we're uh, on the cusp of that reality. But these these communities are just incredible. Like these custom, like there's there's now I'm now in, over at um, Bjornsson Vineyards, is where I've moved to just recently. Methven Family Vineyards was sold after Alan passed, and the tenants there had to move on after we were given a really ample like seven months notice. Okay, you get to do your last harvest here, but these these communities are just like-minded people. You know, other people like me who are doing custom crush. Uh, and are just very passionate about what they're doing. And you get to join this like little community of people who are all like, you know, very particular about their ways. Like, oh, I see what you're doing there. I may have some questions about it, but I'm not gonna, it's not going to impact what I'm doing here. And you know, we all kind of like share secrets among each other, but have very much our own production. But it's a really, it's, you know, these wineries are often large. And the winery that owns them may not be using the entire facility for their own crush. And they do. Like these people like Alan Methven inviting people in to create these collaborative communities, this like society of winemakers where this magic, this true magic can happen. Um, and it was like, yeah, every step of the way, it's just been able to, uh, you know, you get to fall in love with the wine industry over and over again. Just you witness these like really good, truthful moments that um, endure you to it, endure it to you uh, again and again. Um, but yeah, it was so for, you know, all the while, like Seder, uh, Rose Nero was really generous. They knew about uh, state of fire happening. I don't know. I don't think they realized exactly how quick things were going to grow and take off. But you know, every year I had a little bit of liberty, a little bit of free time around harvest because I was just watching the. You know, I was checking with Felipe, the winemaker at Rosemary. I was like, "What do you think about the ripening schedule? Like, how are things?" And I was talking to Natanya. I was like, "How are things looking out there?" And like, I'd be out there with them, just like checking. And I was like, "You know, I was like, what are bricks at today? What are bricks at today?" You know, you know, Felipe. They were always gracious about like sharing their data and stuff like that and giving me free time to do it. I was able to hire a staff that could really look after the taste room and hospitality and sales when I was doing the winemaking. Um, but it was uh, pretty quick. That first year at Meth Ben, we um, produced about 75 cases of wine. Um, the following year, we produced uh, 180 cases of wine. The year after that, we produced uh, about 450 cases of wine. And then from this most recent vintage, um, we made a, we crushed 23 and a half tons, and we'll yield about 1,100 cases. And that's a good number for us. That's a, that's a business. you know. Um, it's a lot. It was a whirlwind. 2022 was a wild harvest, wild vintage. Um, magical, though. It was a fantastic year. I think, I think the wines that we have to look forward to from 2022 are magnificent. This was maybe the most exciting year I got a chance to make wine so far. Um, but it's just been this like, yeah, growth trajectory and this like, falling in love with different varieties. And I mentioned a minute ago that I kind of um, realized this desire I had to do white wine. I think that the reasoning, there's a lot of reasoning. I think now that we have a big, you know, I think that for one, a small producer like me, you have to be a little bit wild to come out and say like, hey world, here's another Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. And so I moved out here for Pinot. I love Pinot. It's, it's the, the best red wine in the world in my eyes. And um, I drink it daily sometimes. Um, but as far as producing wine, I, you know, I wanted to come out and do something different. Um, and the more I embraced that concept, the more I realized that it's more and more, it, it's my mission. It's a very, very real mission that I kind of like stumbled onto something that's more important than I even thought it was when I first started doing it. Um, at the heart of it, as in, like I tell this to people as I'm talking about my wines all the time, um, uh, 
there's also something with that, that first Riesling that I got a chance to make from Yamhill Valley Vineyards uh, from 2019. This, uh, this, uh, it was something so magical about the ferment. Yeah, uh, you know, some little bit of skin contact, taking these grapes in, doing some pigeage, pressing it, seeing this like amazing like brown liquid go in and like settling that and then like going into barrel. And then the fermentation happening in this like close off environment as, a, as opposed to like an open ferment with red wine where you're like beating it up every day. It's exposed to the air. There was something like, there's, it just felt like this time capsule a little bit. And the way I compare it to like for other artists, I, I tell them it's like there's something between like making red wine and white wine. If somebody asks why I like producing white wine, it's the same as asking a painter why they prefer watercolor instead of oil. There's just a feel to it. There's something very visceral about winemaking. There's something that you can truly like feel in your hands, feel in your spirit when you think about moving the wine, when you like get your your thumb on the pulse of that fermentation. Something just feels super right about it. And so we've moved into this category of um, producing white wines because the wines were coming out really good. Um, and I love the style. It's what I like to drink. I got that advice early from some peers, like. It's going to be a while before you sell wine, so make wines that you enjoy drinking because you're going to be doing, <laughs> drinking your own stuff because no one else is going to buy them. Luckily, we've had uh, a lot of good early success with, in the sales world, so other people have been liking them too. But I, yeah, it's what we're doing, making wines that we like drinking, which are these crystalline, high acid, bright white wines from a cool region that have this stoic mineral core, these ethereal layers of just like white fruit and white flowers, bright, you know, like stone fruit, uh, and just, you know, just amazing, ama amazing, refreshing mineral qualities. Um, yeah, and now we're experimenting with all these different varieties, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Riesling, Viognier, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, and it's really lucky. And the, the more I did it, the more I realized that is really what our mission here is in the Willamette Valley, you know, as far as what the mission is for Seder Fire, what my mission is here is um, proving to people that this region is going to be known for more than just Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is no doubt great, and there's, there are generations more of the greatness to Pinot Noir where we are still going to be uncovering secrets and making new discoveries and improving every year. But at the same time, we're going to be realizing that this cool region can produce other wines. You know, at the start of the year last year, I, I didn't go to the symposium this year, but I did last year, and it was like 70% of all the vines in Oregon, or at least Willamette Valley, are planted to Pinot Noir. And there's a significant opportunity for other categories to grow. You know, Riesling is not even a blip on that graph. Uh, Chardonnay is making up like, you know, more and more, but still like only five to ten percent of what we have planted. Um, and I think that from this amazing, like, you know, Oregon is one of the most geologically interesting places in the world, and we have the opportunity to figure out which terroir, which geology is perfect for things like Viognier here, things like, I think Chenin Blanc might be one of the wines that, one of the grapes that surprises people the most in the next decade or two. Um, I know if I had a vineyard going, well, and hopefully I do in the next five or 10 years, but I, if when I do plant a vineyard, it's going to be a Chenin Blanc vineyard out here. Um, I know I'll plant Riesling. Um, I know I'll continue working with Chardonnay. Um, but proving to people that uh, this region is capable of producing this, this tier of excellence in the, in, the, in the white wine world, and that also proving to people that don't truly understand white wine, because there's still a lot, I mean, uh, of, there's still, in working in wine, you know, we work every day with people who are as nerdy about it as ourselves, right? People who are super passionate about it. But working on like the brand development and sales side, I can encounter people all the time who don't have this uh, same range of knowledge or obsession as we do, 
but that's the cool thing about wine is you don't need, you need to be. You know, wine is as deep and rich as you'd like it to be. You can spend your entire life learning about this thing, and n never learn and, never, and only scratch the surface. Never, you know, in, for somebody who is just obsessed with learning, you'll never, you know, deplete that ability to learn more in wine. But it's also as simple as just allowing wine to be the catalyst for a conversation, um, to be on the table during an amazing meal with a loved one. Uh, you know, to be the the piece that extends revelry into an evening that inspires something great, you know? Um, and so uh, folks, I think, that I enc encounter that don't realize that white wine can be as complex and interesting and diverse as red, I love changing their mind. We did a, we did a, um, a food pairing event. We teamed up with North Valley Vineyards for a truffle soiree uh, two weekends ago and showed three Pinot Noirs and then three of our white, white wines. We showed a, um, a Riesling a Chenin Blanc and a Chardonnay, and the only two pieces of red meat on the entire menu were paired with the white wines. And like that conversation was amazing to get to have, like talking about why this pairing was happening, and that when you're having uh, like you know a five course meal, you can do the whole thing with white wine. You don't you don't need to have red wine on your table every single time. But that's yeah an ongoing tale and portion of everything. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's our journey in, in wine so far, has been cultivating these relationships, a dream of building a brand that is you know, meaningful to people, um, that we can infuse our own story into, and um, continue to like, you know, help be a steward of the Oregon wine region. I think that's the big goal. Um, Tell me about, the, about naming and branding your, 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 your brand, and about how it has felt to get it out in front of people, uh, especially more and more and more each year? Um, well, it's felt amazing. The more I get, I mentioned, I, I'm, I talked to winemakers. I was just like, I was at, recently I was at the Salute event with, and I was like after, at an after hours thing uh, and standing with Cody Wright, drinking wine and talking to him about winemaking and then getting onto the conversation and then like we were talking for like 20 minutes about wine, just having a, a great conversation. I had met him once previously, and we were talking about Purple Hands. And um, I work now as the director of sales for Domain Roy. We were talking about that. And then mentioned making wines. And he's like, oh, yeah, what are you making? And I mentioned, oh, yeah, making Seder Fire. He's like, that's you? Oh, I've heard amazing things. I was like, you've heard of this? You know, so it, it's really incredible Like now that we're on that turning point where people are recognized and label. People have heard of the wines. I, you know, it's, uh, it's really cool. But the brand itself and how it came to be, um, yeah, so I mentioned to start this conversation that my background is in, in writing and art and that like, creativity and imagination is like the foundation of my, my character. And I've always been um, deeply inspired by fantasy fiction and science fiction. Um, and uh, when I write, that's typically what I write is uh, you know, like, like fantasy lore and things like that. Um, and so, and then when I when I've drawn uh, and, and painted in the past, it's been a lot of like natural, you know, you know, like paintings in, in, like inspired by nature, and illustrations of like fantastic things, monsters and aliens and stuff like that. And so that's just like my childhood, and impacting my adulthood. I'm a big kid at heart with all that, and I just like constantly inspired every time I just like sit down with a good book and uh, or watching like a good science fiction movie or something like that. Um, 
So with the label Seder Fire, um, it's, it's an opportunity in many ways for me to remember those old callings and those hobbies and passions that I've always had. And because like, you know, 14 years into a wine career, it's easy to, and like I said, we had to jump into this and just go full force into that. It's easy to lose sight and uh, not make time for some of those things that are still a passion in your heart. So that, like years went by where I wasn't making as much artwork as I used to do and I wasn't um, writing as much as I was when I was really trying to, you know, be a novelist. Um, and so as I launched the brand, uh, I realized uh, same, same reason I wanted to do something unique in the winemaking. I wanted to do something unique in the brand. And I thought the best way to do that was to infuse myself into it wholly, make the brand about the stories and, and the imagery. And so make every wine extremely unique. Um, and take it also out of this realm. Like, right, I, I, no offense to anybody, but I look at like, most websites for wineries and its imagery, like pictures of the vineyard and pictures of the cellar and stuff like that. And my vision for this is one that takes place a little bit more in a fantastic reality, right? The characters here, you know, we're talking about my story now, but like when I really do like brand development, my stories are about the satyrs, about the fantastic figures that are in the stories that accompany the wines. The imagery is usually going to be illustration rather than photography um, on everything. Um, so yeah, in, the, in a book that I was writing for years, a fantasy novel that I was working on, it was uh, the characters were satyrs, and if you're uh, if you're not familiar with what a satyr is, it's a um, it's a creature from myth that has goat horns and cloven hooves. Looks a little bit demonic, but is much more playful than that, at least in my eyes. If you look to um, like mythology, like in like in Roman mythology, uh, you know. Bacchus, the god of revelry, was often depicted as a satyr. In Greek mythology, Dionysus, the god of wine, depicted as a satyr. It's a character that plays through um, different ethos and different lore throughout time, but often a, a, a creature known for fun-having, revelry, trickery, lasciviousness, and in my eyes also that, like that for me, the satyr is a dryad, is the, this creature that is directly connected to the, the planet, the soil, the earth. Um, I have this. Uh, fantastic kind of a picture in my head of a satyr kind of like dancing down the vine rows in his vineyard playing the flute and as he does he's like if his music is affecting the vines the tendrils are like creeping up and it's like he is as you know he is a force uh like you know as, as i would love to feel like we are as humans in a in a perfect world um we are a force that helps nature grow like the sun or like the soil, like the wind, like the rain, you know, like, like so the, for me, the satyr is this, like, this dryad, something that's like completely connected to the world. But um, that was the story I was writing. And the, when I first started writing the novel, I think he was like, the character was a fisherman and a lettuce farmer. And then when I, as the story grew and I became passionate about wine, the, the character became a, a wine grower and a winemaker. And then as I became a winemaker, I realized that I was the satyr, and I, like that, I was like dreaming of. Like there was all this like point of me trying to become more like that. But now that I have the brand, it's um, I I have committed to every wine that I make is um, unique in the fact that I'll never have the same label twice. Even if now I've made like I mentioned wine from the same reasoning from the same vineyard six times, it's never going to be called the same thing. Every wine will have a different name. I make all the artwork for all the labels, and so every wine, bottle of wine will have a unique piece of art on the label, a different name, and I always write a short story to go with each wine. Um, and the stories, uh, they are short, you know, one page, front and back, 
short fiction that are kind of standalone. They're always meant to like be able to like if somebody just picks up like Seder Fire Story Number Eleven, like I hope that they will be able to read it and enjoy it. But maybe be a little bit mystified and want to learn more. But somebody who is a collector of the course of vintages, the stories will uh, will tell an ongoing tale too. So I like I like that um, thought. As a collector myself, I do, I do feel like in the world of wine, anyone who drinks wine instead of anything like spirits or beer, things that are, you know, anyone who buys wine at any price point, it's, it's still a, a luxury product, right? And so I feel like anyone who's doing, doing so um, is in some way inspired by the story behind it. They want, like people who buy brands or uh, specifically are, buying, are doing so because they, want, they like the story that's going on with the brand and they want to support that. If people are in a wine club, it's because they like the story of that family or what that winery is doing, the story of how like, their ethos and ideology on the vineyard, the winemaking, the varieties they're doing, in addition to the wines being delicious, of course. Um, but in that, I was like, as I'm building a brand, I'm, I feel like there's a, a, there's a world where like, the, the wine purchasing customer and the comic book collector, collector overlap. And so that's what we're trying to do. Every one of these wine, wines is meant to be unique. There should be a story around it that makes you feel like once you obta you've obtained it and understood it and consumed it, uh, that you have, it's the same as like if you've um, read the chapter of a book or uh, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the comic books in a greater anthology of a graphic novel or something like that. Um, you should feel like you're connected to it in a way where you follow along and you're constantly inspired by it. And so that's where, um, yeah, Seder Fire was born, is the foundation of the wine, is making classic wines in a way that I have learned to do by having had access to working with amazing winemakers, um, having gotten to work with amazing viticulturalists in, in Oregon, have done a, a great deal of my own independent study. Um, so making wines well, making wines cleanly, prettily, perfectly, uh, with enough complexity to make them stand out and unique. But on top, later on top of that is the uniqueness of the story that goes along with the brand. And I think that's, I, both, both sides keep me going. At the end of Harvest, it's like, it's like, do we ever do that again? That was, you know, crazy, nightmarish. <laughs> it's like by the end of Harvest, you're always exhausted. It's like, what am I doing? You know, uh, just just the finish line. You're just, like so exhausted, and you're so ready to like get out of the cellar. Your 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 barrels are all topped. Your malolactic fermentations are going on. You're just like, I need to spend some time outside of this winery. And that's when the other side, the brand building, comes in. And then I'm, there's still something else to go do. It's like, oh, now I get to go back and write these stories, communicate by email with my customers. Social media has become an amazing outlet just to tell that story and to share um, what's going on. And just to like sit down and um, make artwork, and like when I, I've always loved to just like sit back and draw and sketch. But now when I doodle, I know like this is potentially going to be in a future wine label that I'm going to print on thousands of bottles, and and it'll be uh, on the menu in a restaurant at like Epilogue Kitchen and Cocktail in Salem, and it's just like people will be eating amazing food, and and they're server is going to recommend this bottle of wine to them and they're going to come out, they're going to see that art and they're going to, you know, their first experience is going to be, yeah, drinking this amazing white wine alongside amazing food and just hopefully we're out there changing minds and, uh, and uh, delighting people, adding to their revelry and their camaraderie and their reverence for nature in their own way. Love that. That's, that's a, an awesome kind of goal to have. Tell me about all that, on that kind of note. Tell me about the milestones for you so far. What are the biggest sort of accomplishments as you see it as you look at your both kind of wine career outside of Seder Fire, but also for Seder Fire specifically? And what is next? What are the next kind of goals you're looking at? Yeah. Um, 
That's a great question. I think I'm just like pleased on a daily basis. My big, biggest mile, my biggest milestone is like when I get to wake up and like go prune a vineyard, and I'm just like, all right, something I did in the past decade led me to this point, and it means I did something right to be here, right? Every time I get to like meet with a winemaker and taste their wines, or go and like dip a barrel thief into one of my barrels and pull it out and taste what's what's coming to life, and I'm just like, this is insane. Um, as far as milestones, I mean, with the label, I mean, just get, I mean. The business side of the wine industry is difficult, so I'm constantly just whenever I have like I look back and I'm just like I juggled the bottling date and the ordering of corks and getting my colas done with a TTB and getting my labels printed and my bottles ordered all in time to like get these wines put away into bottle and then I get to you know age them and distribute them later on. That always feels like a humongous accomplishment. Um, every year that goes by, and I've maintained good relationships with a number of growers. I get new fruit contracts online. That always feels like a milestone. Um, and I think that just on the, on the wine side, and we have like a, uh, just shy of 150 like wine club members now. The fact that I've got people following the story that want the stories and the wines, and they want to see what's next, and they're enjoying them. I mean, like, to know that like I'm like, every time I pack up a box and ship it out, or like put it into some put a bottle into somebody's hands to take home, and I have this thought of like later on they're going to you know reach across the table with this bottle and pour a glass for their loved one, you know, and it's just it's that's magic to me. It's just knowing that the wines are going out in the world the same way you know I used to like think about writing a story and it being out there and I, people that I've never met being able to like read something and like me building this bridge between me and them somehow is cool. Influencing the world in that way is just the drive and just like being a positive force, being a po you know, just hoping that, hoping that, the, that that's the end impact. Um, milestones, in my, I'm also extremely grateful and very proud of what I've done on the wine business side. Like I said, in five years I grew to a director role with uh, Rosanero, a brand, brand that is flourishing, um, s critically speaking, some of the best Pinots out here. And try them if you haven't. Like, the wines are outrageously good. Uh, and so having a chance to work with those guys on the you know, terroir, the geological purposes of Pinot Noir, being able to take that and you know, just like, I think my biggest accomplishment there was like getting myself in a place where I'm just like, all right, I felt like I'd snuck in, you know, and like, you know, this wine salesman like snuck in and just like had the opportunity to be like a fly on the wall for five years of just one of the most experimental, educated wine projects in Oregon was amazing. Like nobody, like, <laughs> I mean, there were like a, Groucho Fox mask, like, like pretending like, oh, you guys didn't notice I was here, right? Just like stealing all your secrets and, uh, and like learning about how to make fantastic wine. Um, but now to be, yeah, uh, the DTC manager at Domain Roy, getting to work for amazing folks like Jared Etzel, um, having that connection to just this amazing Oregon heritage and Oregon lineage, um, working for somebody that is making incredible Pinot Noir from Dundee Hills, Yamhill Carlton, and elsewhere. And also, uh, one of the big reasons I wanted to go and work for Jared was that he was betting the farm so much on Chardonnay, too. I mean, before I worked with the guy, I would have put his Chardonnays in um, top three, top five in the entire state. And so somebody who was like dedicating as much focus to promoting white wine in the, in the region as well, uh, fantastic stuff. Um, and so, yeah, just. My, yeah, for me, the milestones on the on the career side and the business side have just been like continually just like getting these offers and figuring out ways to to put myself in the position where I can just continue to grow. I never, I haven't had a day since I moved out here where I didn't feel like I had grown, and that's I think pretty incredible. Um, 
as far as the, the region and and what we want to do here and our goals and stuff, it is like you know my small brand is just a small part of what I would like to accomplish. I just want to like be a steward for this wine region. I think there are a lot of people. Uh, I, a lot of my peers. I really I I think this is so cool. I didn't do I didn't go abroad doing harvests as much as many because like I didn't grow up in a wine region. I didn't know I wanted to do this until I was like I didn't move to Oregon until I was 20, 26. Um, and at that point, I only just then realized that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing this. Um, whereas a lot of people that I truly respect have done these harvests elsewhere. Like they've done like seven harvests in different countries. They've gone to Croatia, they've gone to New Zealand, they've gone to Chile. They've made one all over the place. Um, my vision is more. Um, I think I, I said earlier, never missing a vintage here. I think there is a, definitely a time and a place for that person who wants to be a pure steward of the industry here never deviate from that, witness every vintage, and be able to have this kind of internal calendar, this library, this archive that you can look back at in your mind of like the weather every single year, and have a memory of the wines that came from every vintage. Being able to taste these wines and remember that weather. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be tasting the 2022 vintage wines um, five, 10 years from now, and they're going to be unique and ripe and poignant, and we're going to remember that year as like, we, we didn't know if we were going to ripen any fruit because we had this frost in this crazy, cold, wet spring. And we knew by the time we had bud break and bloom that we weren't going to be picking fruit until the end of October. And we all know that September can roll around and just be a wall of rain. And, we, and if we had had one of those years, it would have been a disaster. But we didn't. We had this immaculate golden autumn that it was 90 degrees on the 16th of October. And we did have a chance to ripen and make what may be, and I'm always an optimist, but what may be regarded as some of the best wines in the past several decades from this year. And just being able to like drink that wine in, like I don't know, 2030 and just remember that what I was doing on that 60 degree day on August 16th, or sorry, that 90 degree day on, on, on October 16th is going to be, is, is what we're living for with the stewardship. And I was listening to a podcast recently, um, an interview with Joe Dobbs, and he was talking about like the generation mindset. Generation mindset in wine is, is amazing. I was talking about Louis Michel before, who was, like I said, eighth generation. Like his, his, his grandfather and parents had bought and sold La Tache and La Romanée. He bought back La Romanée. And it's like this, like this multi, multiple generation lineage. And he had like watched his grandparents making wine, his parents making wine. And he's, he's doing it. And that's the generational thing here. Oregon, in its, in its infancy, is now Generational. I think Joe Dobbs referred to like himself as being in the, in the second generation, right? Looking back at that first generation of, of wine growers planting grapes in the very late 60s and through the 70s and making these first wines that were starting to bring notoriety. Um, you know, by the 80s and 90s, people were talking about this region. People like um, Joe Dobbs and Michael Etzel being in this like second generation. They can reference who they learned from. From you know, Michael Etzel saying like I learned how to make wine uh, from Dick Ponzi, right? And now we're in this third generation, and I think that's kind of where I like to, I, I think I fall into. I don't know if I'm like a second half of that third generation or what, but like my boss now, Jared Etzel, clear like, like third generation, he and his brother Mikey, both building a legacy and an empire in this world of wine. And then I, what I love to look around and see also is, is my peers who are people like me, um, whether it's like Eric Berg with Ricochet, Siler Varnum with Varnum Vintners, and I, I, I'm going to 
not name a million of my peers because there's so many of us, honestly, um, and you know who you are. <laughs> but these people who are just like grassroots, realizing it's possible, learning from each other, collaborating, and um, I think that's a really cool thing about this generation that we're in right now is that uh, there's a lot of people with a really open mind who are have a reverence for Oregon terroir have an under, a conceptual understanding of winemaking viticulture and of course age of information. We have access to so much data and there's such a collaborative environment for us to learn from and make great wines from. And we've also got the groundwork that was laid by these first two generations as far as what the wines are going to taste like, what the vintage history is going to look like, what the weather patterns are going to provide. That, um, yeah, I think that I just want to be a good steward in this third generation. and. Um, and continue to promote the region, change people's minds about what can happen here, continue to promote the fact that we are, uh, and this is, I'll say, with all my personal bias imbued, this is the most exciting new world wine region in the world. Um, and yeah, just continue, continue to try to promote and steward that. You mentioned earlier kind of a long-term goal of, of having a vineyard. As you look ahead for Certainly. your brand, do you, have a, do you have sort of a vision in mind for what it will become when it's sort of when it has fully realized, is there is there a full realization of what Zader Fire will be? Yeah, absolutely. I have, like I definitely have distinct um, dreams. Um, you know, it's I this Zader Fire brand is so personal to me. You know, the, and the the sales of brands and buyouts and this is an industry. You know, it's it's I think it's an honor all the attention that this this region is getting right now with all these like. Uh, Big names, you know, Santa Margarita coming in and purchasing Rocco. I mean, uh, the biggest uh, winery in the world, Constellation purchasing Lingua Franca. You know, we have like Bollinger purchasing Ponzi and all these different influences that are coming into Oregon, recognizing the greatness here and, and coming in. I had a chance to, I don't even know what I say this, I had a chance to uh, host Saskia de Rothschild, uh, the current, the first um, female. CEO of Lafitte Rothschild was out here last year exploring acquisitions, and you know if Bordeaux comes into Oregon wine, that's like, that's incredible. Um, but all, you know, in this in this age of like buyouts, I look at my future, and I don't know, I, I can't visualize that, right? I, I I think about being in my 90s and still giving direction on Seder Fire. If I can't physically do it myself, I, I plan to be making these wines for as long as I can keep moving and working. Um, and I, who knows? You know, for me, that this is my person. This is my personal brand. My personal brand is me. I invest in myself constantly and just growing, honing my skills, and 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 working and developing my network of of peers. Um, but I do I do think that I'll be making the Seder Fire wines for as long as I'm alive. Um, who knows if I have other brands and things like that in the future as well? But um, certainly, yeah. Uh, my business partner David Blodek and I are already talking about. Vineyard potential. I have my eyes on um, a few different AVAs that we would. I love Eola Amity Hills. I, I think that right now um, there's amazing potential for good vineyard quality land in the Bendoza Quarter area AVA. Um, I think there's a lot of unplanted land out here. I think that some of our best Grand Cru is are still uncleared forest on the hillside. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential there. But yeah, in the next, um, I, I would definitely like to get five to ten acres under vine in the next five years. Um, that's, a real, that's a real reality. Uh, I would like to plant more in the future. I never want to be a winemaker who only makes wines from his own estate. And there are some great projects that do that. They have their, their parcel, and, like, like, and, and they, they make those wines, and that's, that's the fulfillment for them, and I respect that. But for me, one of the most exciting things about winemaking is playing with all the different microclimates and different geological parcels out here. And so I never want to stop 
maintaining these relationships with growers who are willing to sell me fruit from interesting different parcels. Because there's, so, there's a myriad of different opportunities out here in the Willamette Valley. Um, and so, yes, although we will have a home base on a vineyard, I will have Chenin Blanc and Riesling and Chardonnay in the ground of my own. Um, and eventually, I would like, you know, right now, I sell the wine through pop-ups and at this, like, tastings at the cellar. I've had a lot of great opportunities for peers where they let me come in and use their space and show the wines. Next stage for us will be having a tasting room. It'll probably be more of like, one, like a remote urban tasting room that is, you know, separate from the winery, but who knows? That'll be in the next year or so. Um, but eventually, yes, I do have a dream of just being that Seder on his grove in the glade with his, with his vineyard out front and the cellar where we can have a little place where we show the wine and invite people out to have that full experience. One thing I love about working at a place like Domain Roy is how comprehensive the property is, right? The vines are there. We, we, grow, the, we grow the wines. And then the cellar is here, and we make the wines. And then above that, we have a taste room where we show the wines. And it's just I love that, the, the inspiration that comes with like spending your the full cycle of the business happens in one, in one place. And so I do look forward to that. Um, but uh, Seder Fire being something that I've like, you know, financed 100% personally and building it slowly and is finally now on the cusp of being a reality, it's, yeah, it's been a slow growth to be at this point, but we're lucky to be at a point where we have that opportunity in front of us. Um, in the future, like I said, I'm, I'm super open-minded about collaboration, so I look forward to, you know, having this opportunity to work with other winemakers in the future, start other things, work on other things. Um, I will always like to have, I think that Stater Fire for me will always be a small production, really focused on sub 2,000 cases, hyper, hyper premium uh, white wine, a big focus on that. And I do make Pinot too. I make, out of 1,000 cases, I made about 100 cases of Pinot Noir last year. It's kind of like my homage to the, to the Willamette Valley. I feel like, all right, I got to pay my dues and make a little Pinot too. And much to my chagrin, it's often as good or better than some of my whites, but I try to keep that a secret because <laughs> I'm so focused on, 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 the, on the white wines. But um, uh, yeah, for, for, the next, for the next decade or so, it's just going to be focused on um, strengthening my family, um, providing for uh, providing for myself, my wife, our baby uh, when we have a child, and, and uh, just li letting Seder Fire be like that, a good influence. I want people to like, think of the brand and think, there's a company that's like doing good for Oregon, and we're proud of that guy for having done his thing. But who knows, yeah, for, um, for right now, I do still uh, have a, you know, a career and a day job. And um, I, I think that'll be a big tipping point for me is when I do get to move away from that. And I'm, you know, I'm super grateful for my career and my salary. And I, right now, I rely on that. But I, that day that I get to commit 100% to Seder Fire is going to be that, the, a, real, a real milestone. And I think it's not too far off. You've talked a lot about sort of being a steward for Oregon wine outside of your own, your own brand and your own things. So tell me about. What's next for Oregon wine? You've talked a bit about what you've seen and obviously your first impressions of it and the growth you've seen. With all the acquisition, with all the change in the past few years, what comes next for the industry and what, uh, what sort of role can you play? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and one that's not easy to answer. Because I think that we all see this. Anyone who's like involved in Oregon wine is like, we see what's going on. We see the attention we're getting. So what's next for Oregon wine? It's, it's more than just like, <laughs> price tags going up and more than just like more distribution. It's this understanding that something really, really special is going on here. I think that, like I mentioned, when I was in Tusky, when I was in Alsace, whenever I um, 
you know, am online chatting with people in wine forums and they've like heard about these nerdy little projects that I thought were a secret to just us in the Willamette Valley. It's like, okay, people are recognizing what's happening here and, and how great things are. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And with that, yeah, we're going to see more vineyards being planted. As I referenced, there's a lot of unplanted land out here. You go to places like Alsace, and it's like, yes, they have, like, it's a, it's a very small region. There are 52, Grand, 51 Grand Cru's in Alsace. And it's a, it's a region that's like the size of Shehalem Mountains or, or smaller, right? But there's 51 Grand Cru's. And then you drive along the highway, and everything's planted, like up until like, like 20 feet off the side of the road, like the, the, floor, the valley floor is planted. We don't have that here. Right now, all we have planted is, most, for the most part, is the, the Prima Cru and Grand Cru parcels, and there's more of them out there. But as, as you know, it's, this is a expensive wine region. The wines command a high price point because of how small the region is. We're producing a very, very tiny amount of wine. It's because it's a very expensive place to farm. All of our vineyards are situated on these like little hillsides on the undulating like, you know, rolling hills of the Willamette Valley where we can have the right kind of exposure and geology for the wines and um, and then of course the, the 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 varieties that we're planting are you know, predominantly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir which are producing a, a fraction of the yield compared to other varieties, right? You know, like New Zealand, I think Sauvignon Blanc is yielding like up to 10 tons per acre. You know, I know vineyards out here that are getting like a ton and a half per acre of Chardonnay, right? Like if we're getting if we get more than 3 tons per acre of Pinot Noir from a vineyard, like that's a lot. And so these are what, you know, it's it's the excellence. It's us proving that we are producing like wines of excellence. Uh, Varieties that are like noble varieties, the kings of the world as far as Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and that they're not just, like I said, mirror images or copycats of Burgundy. These are wines that have a whole different story to tell and a whole different voice. And so people who are collectors, they're not just like thinking of uh, Oregon as like a, a less expensive option than Burgundy. They're thinking about Oregon as like a whole different world of these varieties that they love. Um, and so I think that as time goes on, it's, it's not going to be, you know, we're going to see more of the valley floor getting planted. I think we're going to see more of the Grand Cru's being planted. I think a lot more of the farming industry out here is going to switch over to viticulture. I think, you know, right now we're producing, you know, it's Oregon wine is contributing like $3 billion to the local economy. It's going to grow. I think that, you know, as time goes on, this region is going to become known more and more for it. I think you're not going to be able to come to Portland without knowing that this is a wine region. And I think that's already maybe the case, but I think that as time goes on, it's going to become more imprinted. Um, as I referenced before, I do firmly believe that as time goes on, I don't think that we're ever going to lose this idea that like Oregon is Pinot Noir country, but I think that more people are going to realize how fantastic this region is for other varieties. I don't think that it's going to be just like all Pinot Noir. I don't think that's like, you know, I know people who come out here, can, you can taste for weeks and taste nothing but Pinot Noir. And I, you know, and I think that um, you're going to see a lot more diverse programs and a lot more programs that, like, like mine that are focused on non-PNOR. I, I, I think about the big, like, folks like uh, Seth Morgan Long, uh, who are producing nothing but Chardonnay. And here's somebody who's just like devoted 100% to Chardonnay. And his wines are excellent, beautiful, beautiful things. But he is somebody who's just like, I'm going to make an Oregon winery that doesn't make PNOR. And you're going to see more of that. I'm, I, like, I have an Oregon winery that's going to produce just white wines, you know? And I think you're going to have other people that are just devoted to thinking, like, maybe there's some producers out here that like, they start to say, I'm only going to do Gamay, or I'm going to, as things warm up, uh, just Cabernet Franc. That was an interesting point, actually, uh, when I was 
chatting with the people from Rothschild is they had a lot of questions about Cab Franc. Anybody can't plan in Cab Franc? It turns out that this is a grape variety that um, requires slightly higher temperatures than Pinot Noir, but a similar number of growing degree days. And so based on like, you know, where we are uh, uh, on the globe, we could ripen Cabernet Franc. It needs to be some of these warm years. Some of our cooler vintages might not do it, but if the, the trends keep getting warmer as, as they appear to be, to be doing, we could be producing some amazing Cabernet Franc. And it's also, we're also figuring out year by year the viticulture side of things. You know, we're figuring out how to counteract. Uh, it's, just, it's just canopy management, the way we train the vines, um, the way we prune, um, and the way we farm. Yeah, we can grow different things. And so I think that, uh, I think there's a lot of great stuff uh, in the future for Oregon as far as what right now you might not expect like, that eventually we may be regarded as one of the best Riesling regions in the world, right? Blasphemy, maybe? Not for me. That's like, like one of my biggest missions is, is making Riesling. You may start to have this conversation about some of the best Cabernet Francs in the world coming from Oregon. Um, I was in, I think that we're also here, we have this opportunity to act faster than a lot of like old world wine regions do. But I was, my wife and I were um, in uh, Alsace last year and we were sitting with. Uh, Eddie Fowler of uh, Domaine Weinbach, which is like, again, like we're talking about like six generations of history in Alsace and in a region that like they, they have their noble varieties. The only things that, that can be like grown and labeled as Grand Cru previously were uh, the noble ones. What are they? Riesling, Muscat, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, I think were the four. And you could grow other things, but you just couldn't label them. They had to be like Vin d'Alsace, but, but Pinot Noir was being grown there. And, and the Pinot Noir is getting better and better. And they were, like we are, experiencing warmer and warmer climates every year to the point where the Pinot Noir was ripening better and better every year. And their farming was changing because they had access to modern um, viticulture science. And it was actually this year, 20, I think 2022, last year, was the first year the consortium came together and approved Pinot Noir to be labeled as Grand Cru. So in, hun in, in hundreds of years of history, and we just now get to li label something as Grand Cru, and it's Pinot Noir. And then Eddie, and Eddie like leans over and he's like, the secret's like on that granite hillside over there in Schlossberg, we're actually planting Grenache. And he was like so excited about this. And he's like, we can't even label it. You know, it's like, it's like a cheat, you know, it's, but we think, we think that 10 years from now, people will be talking about that. So we're trying to get ahead of that. Here, we can do whatever we want. You know, it's a, so it's, we don't have to like wait for a consortium to come together to say, you're allowed to grow Cabernet Franc here. <laughs> we can just go out there and bet the farm on it. You know, it's not, it's not an inexpensive decision and it could uh, end up biting us later on. But I think that that's the spirit of Oregon, is this like experimental mindset. And I think that there's a lot of farmers out here who are willing to make those changes. So I guess that's a long-winded answer to the question about what, what do we think we're going to see in, in the future of Oregon is going to be some change. I think there's going to be a lot more variety. Um, I think there's like going to be a lot more uh, exciting surprises in terms of what great, highly critically reviewed wines are coming out of this region in the future. And as far as my part in that, I just look forward to like being one of those conspirators, you know, being a, uh, somebody who is always willing to take a chance, um, work with a variety that I've never worked with before, um, look into it, research it, learn about it, do my due diligence, and then just try my hand on it with my own kind of uh, artistic craft and approach. Um, like this year was the first year I had a chance to work with Viognier. Uh, 
I bought, it was landed in my lap. And this is how it works. Like the, the network provides for you. you. If you are good to the people around you, like this stuff comes like spilling back onto you. It's like, but like I, my friend Siler Varnum uh, has been an influence uh, and just somebody who like had the, the gumption to like start his own winery, but like do I devote everything to this craft and has gotten, you know, he's several years ahead of me as far as being successful in, in, in building his brand. But just like being friends with him and um, you know using him as a resource, it's just like this past year he was just like, oh hey, there's this vineyard. Uh, I, I have more fruit than I can handle this year, but I've bit, I've gotten fruit from Rizzo Vineyard out in Eola Amity Hills for a couple of years. I love the site. He has Muscat. He just offered it to me. I don't want it. Can I put him in touch with you? I was like, I'll, I'll take the Muscat. And then <laughs> and then. While I'm talking to Habib, uh, viticultural director over there, he's just like, I, yeah, OK, this is the price for the Muscat. Come and see the vines and walk them. And then when I meet him, he's like, oh, and if you want it, we have Viognier as well. I'm just like, that looks beautiful. I will take it. You know, <laughs> I will try that. Um, and it just, I, I did a little, as you know, I, as I knew, like just a few weeks before I was getting this fruit, that I was going to be doing it, I did research on other uh, New World Viognier. I did. I did some uh, research on Northern Rhone. I asked questions to winemakers that I knew who had worked with grape before. I looked to California and um, some producers that were doing Viognier there, and kind of built up a game plan. People they told you know about. We try to make these really acid-driven, lean mineral wines. Um, it's the, instead of like you know, I don't usually try to make wine, white wines that are like have that more viscous, oily, or inert kind of a presentation, and so. Yeah, I just applied my methodology, picked based on the acid range that I wanted to do, and then and then had the had the let, and then once I had it in the cellar, I just let the juice do its thing with the acid range and the and the ripeness that we picked it at, and put it in the barrel, let it do partial malolactic fermentation, and the wine is killer. Like I love it. Now I'm just like now I need to make sure I can lock that contract in again next year because I can't now envision myself going another year without making Viognier. It's become important to me. Just like we started with started with Riesling. Um, got into Chardonnay because I realized as a white wine producer in Oregon, you better make damn good Chardonnay or no one's going to take you seriously. And then same thing, Chenin Blanc fell into my lap um, third year in a row this year making Chenin. And that was it's become extremely important to me. Um, and then, yeah, every year you kind of find these new little discoveries. And it's like recognizing that Eola Amity Hills, which five or 10 years ago, you ask people, where are you growing there? Of course, it's Pinot Noir. Now, I think that a lot of people would say some of the best Chardonnays from the region are coming from Yola Amity Hills. And maybe a lot of people are saying uh, the, best, uh, the, best, like the, the best thing that Yola Amity Hills is doing may be Chardonnay. It might be blasphemy also. But to think like, OK, Yola Amity Hills from these like fossilized ancient marine sediments out there and, some, and from some of the volcanic hillsides out there are, are producing Viognier. It's like, yeah, it's there. It's doing well. It grew extremely well. And it provided me with amazing, delicious white fruit, uh, 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 ripe fruit with incredible character. And it's unlike Rhone. It's unlike California. It's unlike Washington. It's, it's, so, it's, it's an Oregon Viognier. And that's, again, what we're trying to do. I look forward to like, giving a voice to Oregon Riesling, a voice to Oregon Viognier, a voice to Oregon Chenin Blanc. And um, yeah, just continue to like, promote those. that. That idea that there's a world of mystery out there that we haven't tapped into yet. Not every mystery has been discovered. <laughs> so, all the questions that I have for you, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? 
Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, have a, I can ramble for hours and hours, as any of my <laughs> wine club members know, or any people that I've stolen wine to or just get into wine conversations with. But I think it's been a great conversation. Um, I've, I, I think the thing, what I want to like remark on most, and I think I've gotten a across here, is just the nature of this wine industry and how impactful the community is and the camaraderie here, the reverence for nature here, um, how focused we all are on um, really honoring Oregon nature is, it is here. And I want anyone who watches this or hears my story to have that as a takeaway. It's like that, like my story is a product of what Oregon wine has been able to offer. It is because of not me or not any one person in, in general, not one generation of winemakers uh, in general, but it's, it's this ongoing community. And we have to uphold that. We have to really um, keep that going. And if you're just getting into wine for the first time and considering moving to Oregon, that this is definitely the place where you can expect that kind of growth and experimentation that I think a lot of uh, people haven't quite made up their mind about what they want to do or are lusting after. But this is a place that is yeah, truly fulfilling. And Oregon is truly wonderful and beautiful. Absolutely true. And, and thank you so much for, for coming and joining us with us today, sharing your stories, uh, sharing your passion for Oregon wine. I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.